Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Hey, good morning. My name is Dave. If you are new to our church, I am, I am the lead pastor here, one of three full-time pastors, and uh, we have been working our way through a series called Life on Life Ministry. And it's important you know this about the Christian faith, that it's really not designed for us to grow in solitude. Uh, I guess what I mean by that is you can't experience spiritual growth apart from other people. I mean, there are times when you get away and God meets you, but over the long haul of your life, if you reject Christians around you, you are limiting the amount of growth you can experience as a spiritual being. Because God designed this faith to be driven forward as we spur each other on and invest in each other. And that's important that you hear that. I know some of you right now, um, you're ramping up to your attentiveness. This is that, that sort of uh, precursor stuff that, that sounds like fine print. But it's really important you understand this. If you've been walking alone as a Christian... You're not actively engaged in a relationship that is helping you to grow. Then it explains why sometimes, maybe all the time, your faith feels a little flat. It's why you struggle disproportionately. Chances are that if you are married and your spouse is not that spiritual partner, then you're probably taking a lot of your own stuff out on that person and throwing it at them all the time. And so it's really important we understand that life-on-life ministry is not just a good idea. It is essential to spiritual growth. This morning, we're going to talk about something called house rules. House rules. Just out of curiosity, how many of you guys have a poster like this somewhere in your house that says house rules or family rules? That's a picture of the one hanging in our house. I took that picture last night. And... uh, I don't know how much our family actually reads that thing or how biblical it is, but just like the idea of a family having a stated set of house rules. And we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Here's what it says. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Growing up, I really enjoyed going to people's houses to play. Like, I, I, I like, they didn't call them play dates back then, but, you know, when I was a little kid, I loved when my friends would say, hey, you want to come over? And my parents would say yes. And it was often after church we'd go over. But I remember the first time I ever slept over at someone's house. Do you guys remember your first experience sleeping over at someone else's house? I learned something in that first sleepover. It's a very different experience going over to play for a couple hours than sleeping over and actually like living in this family's rhythm, being part of their family for like 24 hours. And what I learned is 
I really like my own family a lot better than I like every other family on earth. Every other family, if you get to know them well enough, are weird. They do stuff wrong. It doesn't smell right. Parents don't act the same. And, you know, what I realized is this family operates differently. For example, just a small thing, but we finished dinner and I noticed that at this, at my friend's house, nobody did anything afterwards. The mom came and cleared everything away. And I was like, that's weird because at my house, we get crushed if we don't put our own dishes away. And then I remember thinking we rinse them and put them in the right side of the sink, but this family threw them right in the dishwasher. Dirty. And I freaked out because as an Asian, we only use our dishwasher as a drying rack. We don't actually wash dishes in it. So I'm like, what are you doing? They're not clean yet. They're like, duh, the machine is for cleaning the dishes, dummy. And I just realized little by little that I don't fully understand other families. And when I slide, and the truth is, I'll, I'll admit it, my first sleepover, I wanted to call my mom in the middle of the night and come home. I was like, I don't like this family. I like my family. And it's just a little little um, funny illustration to point out. There's something about each family that's peculiar, and each family operates on their own house rules. And I think what Paul is writing to Timothy is simply this, that in any family, including God's family, that family has the right to conduct itself according to a set of family rules that makes sense within that family. That's not easy to think about, but in the Christian family, if you are a person who calls God your heavenly father, if you call Jesus Christ your savior, I'm not describing something optional to you. I'm talking about something that affects you and me, whether we choose this or not. We are part of the family of God, and as such, There is a right way and a wrong way for us to conduct ourselves. This family has, and I'm not just talking about harvest, I'm talking about the family of God, has a set of house rules just like your house does. And we are called, we are obligated to live by those rules. And when we don't, something will happen in the real world that we don't want to happen. In a country like ours where nonconformity and independence are virtues, That's not really a popular teaching. But the truth is that it's not really up to us in the church to conduct ourselves the way we see fit. There is a way that we ought to act, and there is a way we ought not to act. And that's very clear throughout Scripture. And Paul offers in in verses 14 to 15 several compelling pictures of what the church actually is in the world to illustrate why it's so important that the church and its members conduct ourselves according to this code of conduct, that obeying and aligning our lives with the house rules of God's family matters, and it matters a great deal in the way that the world will look at us and will then see God or fail to see God. The first of those pictures is that Paul describes the church as God's family. He calls it God's household, but really he's not talking about a building He is talking about a gathering of people, and family is really the best word for it here. See, we're part of God's family when we are saved, in the same way that you didn't really choose which family you were born into, right? Isn't that true? Have you ever regretted the family you were born into? Anyone? Do you ever have, you're like, well, they're sitting right here. You know, 
Youth group members are all tempted to raise their hand. There are times when you're like, why did I have to be born to this family or in this place or to this nationality or as this gender? The facts of our birth are not something we choose. They just happen to us. They are part of being born into a real world. And in the same way, when we're born again, it's not a matter of choice or selection. We find ourselves members of the family of God. The moment you call him Heavenly Father... All of these people become brother and sister to you. That being in God's family is a byproduct, inescapable byproduct, of being a Christian. And as such, God has the right to define as the father of this family a set of house rules. In other words, it's not up to each member of the family to say, this feels right to me, I'm going to go with this. You know, at our, our family, uh, every morning, or every, I mean, every mealtime, when we sit around as a whole family and we pray for a meal, it's our family rule that we join hands around the table. So all six of us, now, now five of us, one, one of us has to reach really far across the table to close the gap that Noah left behind, but we join hands. And that's not something we leave to everybody's personal preference. It's something we've decided matters to us that we're linked together as we give thanks And it would disrupt the family if one of my kids says, you know, I'm so done with the whole joining hands of prayer thing. I don't like it anymore. You guys go ahead. I'm just going to do this. Yeah, I guess you're free to it. I'm not going to beat you until you join hands with us. That would be counterproductive. But do you see that that choice to reject the, the house rules doesn't come without consequence? It creates an effect in our family that if four of us join hands and one of us does this, Like it or not, that personal choice will have a corporate effect on the whole. And so it's right that we don't make up our own rules, but what we say is, God, this is your house, your family, you are our father. We have to align ourselves with your rules, and we don't make them up for ourselves. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said. A.W. Tozer was a great pastor and a writer, and he said this, He said this, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other, then they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Let me explain what he's really saying. He's saying that we will be more in tune with each other when all of us are tuned to the one same God than when all of us look at each other and say, why can't we get along? What is wrong with you? Why do you feel this way towards me? Why do you act like this? Whenever we experience disruption and breakage in our relationship, the chances are very high that the problem is not the people we're broken with, but the fact that we've come out of tune so that I feel like I'm in tune to myself. Listen, if our praise team, every person tuned their instruments to their own ear and said, I think this is E to me, and then they all got them to try to play together, it would sound gross. Because every instrument is, is tuned to itself, but not to a standard called the key of E. 
And as a result, each person thinks they are making the right sound and there's dissonance with every instrument around them. And in a band like that, the easiest thing to to observe is you're doing it wrong. No, you're doing it wrong. I tune my instrument. I'm perfectly in pitch. And that's the whole point of it, is that we will always experience relational disruption when we have tuned to ourselves and not to a standard by which we are all bound together. I see this again and again and again in family relationships and friendships. People say, the problem is them. They're not loving. They're not gracious. They're not forgiving. All the problems are with those people. I know I have resonance within myself. I do everything according to my own conscience. I live by my own set of of rules. But what if your set of rules does not reflect the father to whose family you belong? What will that do to the relationships you have with your siblings. I know that if one of my children said, you know, the truth is, I love me a lot, and I don't really care for my brothers and sisters, I think that would have a real serious effect on our family. You cannot just be tuned to your own key. You have to be keyed to a standard. And when that happens, something beautiful happens among all the individuals. There is harmony There's ability to actually get resonance. That's why when we decide to break from God's house rules, his code of conduct, when we decide, I know what the right thing is, but right now I'm not feeling right, I'm feeling naughty, I'm going to do what feels right to me. I'm going to do what feels necessary to me. You know that feeling. Um, You're pretty beat up, you're worn out, and you know that what you're contemplating is exactly opposite of what God says. And yet, there's not really, you can't find in you the ability to care about that. And so you say in your heart, I know this is wrong, but I'm not feeling right. And I choose to to depart from the rules of God's house. I choose to do things that I know are a violation because right now in my heart, I do not feel close to the family. And when we do that, when we break from the rules of the Father, by definition, we will also experience a mistuning with each other. Every time we break from God's rules, we also break the relationship between us and the rest of God's children. Some of us wonder why, when we're going through hard times, nobody in the church feels close to us that I can't feel close to them either, that even when they do approach, I'm annoyed by their presence. I just don't want to be around them. Have you ever experienced that? Back me up a little. Is it just me? When I'm going through a real funk spiritually, I'm not in a good place. Everyone around me, I just feel like, ugh, you're gross. I don't get away from me. I don't feel close to you. And sure, I could point the finger and say that they're misconducting themselves, but the truth is that when I broke from my father's house rules, When I broke from his family code of conduct, it immediately created a rift, a distance between me and my brothers and sisters. That's just the way it works. It's rare that two siblings are in the same family and one says, Dad, I hate you. But bro, you and me, we're still good. And that that brother goes, yeah, I'm glad you hate him, but you still like me. It doesn't really naturally work that way in family. One of the things we remind each other in Life on Life ministry is that we're not free agents. We're part of a family. And like any family, 
There's a father who defines the rules for us. And when we align our lives with what he said, it becomes possible for us to walk in harmony with our friends in the church. And when we break, and this is what I'm basically trying to say. Most people I know who are rebelling against God spend a lot of time analyzing the behavior of everyone else in the church. But it's rare that they look at themselves and go, but I did something here too. I chose knowing what is right and wrong to clearly, defiantly just choose what is wrong, and yet I am obsessing over the failings of every other person. Why isn't the church more this? Why isn't the church more that? But why not? Just pause for a minute and say, but what am I bringing to this family? Am I bringing health? Am I bringing unity? Am I bringing alignment with our Father? Or am I besmirching the name of this family to which we belong? I think that repentance is a lost thing in America. I think we become so defiant in our sin that we judge those who don't live with our sin far more harshly than we judge the brokenness and rebellion in our own hearts. And I want to just encourage you, if you're in the midst of broken, in fact, not just a couple broken relationships, but if you feel like you versus the church right now, if you feel like it's you standing in opposition to every other person in your family, I'm not saying there's no issue with the church. Don't get me wrong. Every church, even ours, has big issues. But is it possible that the one blind spot for you is to look in the mirror and say somewhere along the way, I broke from my family. I departed from the rules of my father's house. There's a second picture that we're offered of the church, and that is that it is the house of the living God. Now, as children, we're taught that God is omnipresent, right? You know what that means, omnipresent? It means that he is everywhere at all times. He is right now here in this room, and he's also chilling out around the rings of Saturn. So he's everywhere, right? But the interesting thing we learn about in Scripture is that God chooses to have a special kind of presence in the church. That among the people that he calls his spiritual family, he has a special kind of presence. Though he is actually present everywhere, he is especially present. Sort of like the difference between a dad who is physically in the building and a dad who is actually home with us. Do you know the difference? Do you guys know the difference between a a father who is physically in the building and a father who is really at home with us? The father who is physically in the building says a lot of stuff like, What? I'm home, right? Leave me alone. I'm here, ain't I? Yeah, you're kind of here, but you're here like the furniture is here. It's almost easier when you're not around because then at least we know you're not here. But sometimes you're right in front of our faces and you're a thousand miles away. What God says is when he's among his people, his family, he's not just there in theory. He is there fully engaged. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells, lives in your midst. And so what Paul says in this letter to Timothy is that the church is the home, the house of the living God. 
Not a building, not an event, but a gathering of people. This place, whenever we gather together in his name, whenever your community group gathers, anytime you gather with other Christians under the banner of the name of Jesus Christ, we are the church, and in so doing, we become the house of the living God, his chosen dwelling place on the earth. Before the church could be our house, before we can shout to the universe about how the church must be for us, we have to acknowledge that it is God's house before it will ever be our house. That's very important that before we demand the church to be our house, we first acknowledge with humility that this is his house. It's the place, the gathering in which he has chosen to express and reveal himself to the world. I think that like anybody's house, a home is a physical, visible expression of the inner life, the inner nature. So, for example, if you know somebody at work to be a slob, his desk is completely chaos, when you go to his house for a dinner party, you're not surprised to find that his house is a little, right? And when you've got Miss OCD, everything's neat and tidy, and you go to their house, you expect that a house is going to be fastidious, very clean, very neat, right? But we're very surprised, aren't we, when we see somebody who is a total control freak at work, totally OCD, a minimalist desk, everything's... And you go to the house and it's disgusting. You're like, what happened? I know you this way in public, but when I go to your home, it's a mess. It's, there's this uh, contradiction between what I think I see of you and what I'm discovering in your own house. I'm mentioning that because I think a lot of people in our culture are cynical and critical of the church. And it's not because they're unspiritual. I think, in fact, some of the loudest mouthed atheists, some of the the most um, vigorous opponents and critics of the church are actually people who have a deep spiritual longing and have been so wounded and disappointed that they're protecting their hearts. Unspiritual people don't have the time to waste thinking about the church. But when you're actually on a campaign to criticize the church, that means that you've needed it and it hurt you. And I think the reason so many people are critical of the church today is because in the public arena, they, they heard rumors of this God who is love, who has a plan for our lives who cares deeply, who knows our name, and yet in society they walk around feeling disconnected, alone, and so they say, this is his house, let me go there and try to find him. But when they go into the house of God, sometimes what they see confuses them because it doesn't, it doesn't line up with the picture of the God they saw in public. I think a lot of people have a deep spiritual yearning, and it makes sense for anybody who's looking for God that they should be able to find him in his house of all places. Would you agree with me? If you were not a Christian, wouldn't you expect that if you came here on a Sunday, week after week, at some point you'd run into God? I don't know where else to find him. I went to his house like a hundred times. It's like he never shows up. And I think that's really what Paul is writing about here, is that if we acknowledge that the, the church is God's house, then everything we do here must somehow point to the inner nature, the character of the Father whose house this is. That's why when my children act very strangely, I feel embarrassed. They never feel embarrassed, but I feel embarrassed because this is my family, my house, and you're embarrassing me. 
And I'm sure I did that all the time to my mom and dad, especially to my dad. I think I embarrassed him a lot. I think I disappointed my parents a great deal. And that's because a family, a house, should work together to reveal the nature of the father of that house. Here's another way of putting it. I think that when people come to a church, it should be like a gateway to the kingdom of God. This should be a place where people can legitimately have a meaningful encounter with the God of the universe. And while we can't do anything to guarantee that encounter, we can do an awful lot to get in the way of it. Isn't that true? Like, look, I can't make you like a movie when you go to the theater with me, but I can guarantee you won't have a good experience at that movie. Isn't that true? The movie's going to be the movie. If you like it, you like it. But I can talk to you, throw popcorn at your face, smoke next to you, be on my phone. I can make sure that you never give the movie a fair chance because I am the annoyance buzzing in your ear, getting in the way of why you showed up in the first place. I think when we break from God's house rules, that's the effect our lives have on people looking for God, is I'm trying to see your God and I can't see past your ugly head. Your foul behavior, your misalignment with God is getting in the way of me seeing him and I desperately need to see him. I see brokenness, selfishness, lovelessness, unforgiveness everywhere I go in the world. I don't need to come to the house of God and see it. And that's what I think a lot of people are saying is, I see garbage everywhere. Have you walked around the world and heard just how profane our culture has become? People used to swear only when they're angry. Now people swear when they're having fun, when they're excited, when they're lonely, when they're bored. People just swear because it's language now. I'm so scared listening to all the profanity in the world that one of these days I'm going to drop an F-bomb from the pulpit and not even realize I did it. Because it's everywhere. I don't need to see any of that in here. Because when I come here, I'm looking for God. I'm not looking for the world, the cesspool, the outhouse that I live in every day out there. That's why our living by the Father's house rules matters. Because as we align with him, our lives reflect him. We stop getting in the way of people who are desperate to see God when they come here. In 1 Corinthians 14.25, Paul's describing a church that is functioning properly, a church that is healthy. And he says, as they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed and they will fall to their knees and worship God, declaring, God is truly here among you. This should be the experience of people who visit the church is that as they come here and we get out of the way, we, we point them to the Father, they see God and then they see themselves and they are able to declare, this is why I came to this place. This is why I sought out the house of God. Surely God is here among you people. And I think that should be on our hearts all the time. Let me give you a third picture of the church. And that is that the church is a pillar and foundation of the truth. This is one of those, those things where you read and go, I don't get why he suddenly breaks into this language. The first two I could understand, family, house of God. But then he says, you're also like the pillar and foundation of the truth. But remember that Paul is writing to Timothy 
who has been left behind in the city of Ephesus in order to shepherd a church that was greatly damaged by bad teachers. So the intended audience of this letter is Timothy, who lives in the city of Ephesus. How many of you guys know that the city of Ephesus in the Bible is today the city of Izmir, Turkey? Does that sound familiar? Izmir, Turkey is where our partners, Don and Michelle, currently live. So they actually live on the site of the ancient city of Ephesus, where a lot of this takes place. And anybody who lived in Ephesus in those days would not have been able to mistake the clear image Paul is trying to evoke. Now, if you remember reading the the book of Acts, Paul once got into really, really big trouble in Ephesus. In fact, he almost got killed in Ephesus, and it was primarily because he took his finger and poked it in the eye of the goddess Diana. Not literally, but the predominant religious figure in the city of Ephesus was the Greek goddess Artemis or Diana, that the whole city worshipped, an entire industry was built around all the tchotchkes that were used to worship and give honor to Artemis. And high atop the city of Ephesus, you would have found the temple of Artemis. This is an artist rendering, pretty faithful rendering of what it probably looked like. And it sat on top of this mighty foundation and was surrounded by at least a hundred pillars, columns of stone, many of them overlaid with gold or with, with jewels encrusting them. And they were all at least 60 feet tall. Anyone who visits Ephesus, this is the one enduring image you walk away with is, did you see that ridiculous temple on top of the hill looking down over the city? That temple sitting proudly on its mountaintop was a testament to the world that came to visit this city that the goddess Diana rules this place. That the city of Ephesus belongs fully to the goddess Artemis. That's what that thing testified to. That if you go to Ephesus, you can't miss the fact that this is a city defined by the worship of this one goddess. And what Paul is saying is the church in every place serves that exact same purpose. That there is a world watching And that when we live according to the rules of our house, when we align our lives with the standards of our Heavenly Father, we provide to the watching world a stable, unshakable testament to the importance, the power of God whom we serve. Some of you may recognize this building. Anybody know what building this is? This is the Sampung department store, or at least it was. In 1995, this building experienced a complete architectural collapse. This is what it looked like 20 seconds after that collapse. It's a store that 40,000 people a day visited. And when the collapse happened, in 20 seconds, a five-story shopping mall became a pile of rubble. It killed 502 people. It trapped about 1,500 people, seriously injuring 937 of those. Some people were stuck in the rubble for 17 days without food and water, and by some miracle survived through sipping at rainwater that fell through the rubble. It would be the deadliest modern building collapse until the Twin Towers came down in 9-11. Here's the backstory of how this 
became this. There was a Korean company run by a chairman who didn't really care about anything but money. And he started construction with this building intended to be an apartment complex. But he realized he could make more money by converting it into a shopping mall. So midstream, he changed all the plans and said, no, we're going to do a mall here instead. And he told the construction company, tear down all these supporting pillars and make room for escalators. Of course, the construction company said, we're not going to do that. That's crazy. The building will fall. And the chairman responded, then you're fired. And I will find someone who will do what I say. And so every voice that dissented got kicked out and replaced until they found somebody equally crooked who would do this work against all sound architectural principles. Then after it was done, he said, four stories isn't high enough. Let's build a fifth story on top of the existing structure and let's put an ice rink up there. That didn't work out exactly. We said, let's put all our restaurants up there and let's make heated floors so they have pipes filled with water. And then they loaded dozens of huge industrial air conditioning units on top of that roof. Basically, he weakened the structure and loaded more weight. And what did you think was going to happen eventually? And any time anybody said, look, I'm a, I'm a structure engineer, this is not a good idea, he would shut that voice up, fire them, and find somebody who would do the work. They knew there were problems because cracks started showing all over the building. But they covered it up, they ignored it. And in a single moment, 20 seconds, 502 souls who were trying to have a nice day shopping lost their lives. This dramatically illustrates the danger of trying to uphold the weight of the truth, the weight of human life in a broken world. This life is not a trivial thing. It's not small. Every decision we make affects other lives forever. The things we do touch the lives of our friends and family through eternity. There's no such thing as a personal or private decision anymore. Everything you do touches somebody else, and everything we do reflects our holy God. And when you try to hold up that kind of weight with weakened pillars and on a shaky foundation, you have a recipe for disaster. I really think that this is a vivid picture of the church in America. And he says, it is not just through slick marketing and dazzling programs that you will win the hearts of the world. But it is when you so believe the truth of the gospel that you have the courage to align your life, the will of God, even against your own nature. That is enormously difficult to do. But I think the witness the world is waiting to see is you are asking us to believe something almost impossible. What they're waiting to see is do you all believe this yourselves? Do you believe that what is true is true even when it costs you everything? Because I think a lot of people are hoping such a truth exists in the world. I think it's terrifying to suppose that God is just our imagination and that this is all there is. And I think most people who are paying attention long for there to be a real God. What they want to know from us is, do you truly believe 
that God is your father, that he is the king of kings. He has lordship over you and me. church that abandons the truth of God cannot present a strong and stable witness to a watching world. Let me end with this. This verse, I'm, if you know anything about the Bible, I'm going to deeply offend you by pretty much glossing over this verse, which is perhaps the richest verse in the text, but it would require a whole other sermon to unpack. Let me simply say this. Paul is giving us six stanzas, the lyrics from a hymn of the early church. This was one of their praise songs, and it, it, if you could guess at a title, the title would be The Mystery of Godliness. When we use the word mystery today, what do you usually think about? We think about a story where I just like, this is a mystery. You know, when you, when you say, why did they do that to you? I don't know. It's a mystery. And we use the word mystery to say it's unknowable, inexplicable. How can anyone figure it out? But at the heart of the word mystery is a very different idea. The Greek word mysterion from which we get mystery means this. It is something secret that now is revealed. And that's the heart of every mystery, right? The story all the way to the end of the movie is like, what is going on? Who done it? But at the end, they reveal the secret and you go, oh, yeah, that all makes sense. Right? Isn't that what... what um, Pulp Fiction was all about. You're watching going, somebody crazy made this movie. It makes no sense. But at the end you go, oh. And in a great mystery, the emphasis is not on the unknown part. It is on the fact that finally something secret that ties it all together is revealed to us. That's what makes a mystery wonderful. I think the world today has lost that idea. If we celebrate doubt and uncertainty and unknowability, we make that the greatest thing in the world. I just watched a talk given by a guy at Marisol Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. As he resigned, his open stated reason for resigning as the pastor of that church is, I don't know who God is anymore or what the truth is. I don't know what the gospel is. I just There's mystery everywhere, and I'm okay with that. I thought, all right, dude, resign, be in doubt by yourself, but don't stand on a pulpit and confuse 10,000 people. How selfish is that? We live in a time where not knowing stuff makes us so comfortable. Man, I don't know. We just love not knowing stuff. Can anyone know God? Man, God's unknowable. Just stop it. But the truth is, we don't live in that kind of foolish mystery. The secret is revealed. Everything in this hymn says that God is not hiding from you. Jesus is revealed. He appeared. He was preached. He was believed on. He was ascending in glory. There's nothing hidden about Jesus. He wants to be revealed to the world. And the revelation of Jesus to the world is us. We, the church, are God's chosen method to reveal himself to people. That's our mission. It's our privilege, and we will be effective in it if we also know him and follow him and align ourselves with him. When people see this family, they need to be able to see the heart and character of our Heavenly Father. That's so important. And that's why I encourage, I call you in the name and authority of Jesus to pay attention to how you live, 
I know your heart is the most important thing, but in the end, your heart drives your conduct. And I ask you, be attentive to what you do and what you don't do. Know that there's no such thing as an unimportant word, an unimportant deed. Everything counts. And I want to encourage you. Remember that we're a family. We're a family where God is our father. And we need to present a strong and united family, not by looking at each other, but by tuning our hearts to the rules of the Heavenly Father. Remember also that this is, before it's our house, this is God's house. And that matters. People are here not to visit us, but ultimately they're here desperately wanting to see God. And when you come to church year after year and don't see God, the heart starts to shrivel. It grows weak. And so we want to be the kind of church that reflects the inner nature, the character of our Heavenly Father. People need to be able to see God when they come to this place. Finally, just like the strong, proud pillars of the temple of Artemis, we're supposed to be a city on a hill. Our church is supposed to be one of the things that upholds the truth of God's claims in this world. That when we say God rescues, we have to believe he rescues even me. When we say God changes people, we have to believe that he changes even me. And when we say that nothing is beyond the reach of this God, we have to believe that that's true of our lives as well. And when we so deeply embrace that truth, then we will serve him properly by upholding that great claim of God to a world that desperately needs to come under the protection of that roof. So I'm going to invite you just to uh, quiet your hearts now. I I can tell you as a pastor at the same church for 20 years that there is no shortage of opinions about the church. I'll bet you you're this morning here in this place with lots of strong opinions about the church, how it's been performing, how it's let you down. I guess what I want to say is before we can look outward and analyze the church, I think God is calling us to look inward and ask, what effect do you have on the family of God. I know you can articulate the way the family of God has met with you, but what effect are you personally having? I know you might be in pain, but pain doesn't exempt us from membership in the family. We're still his sons and daughters, whether our siblings are misbehaving or not. Our pain does not exempt us from calling him father and being part of his family. So I ask you, what, what role, what impact have you had on the family of Jesus Christ? Are you honoring your Heavenly Father with your whole life and with your whole heart? Because if you are not and you're doing that willfully, you're tearing a bond that you desperately need to hang on to. It's not safe to cut the string that attaches you to God. And I'm worried that some of us are doing just that. 
So I want us to enter right now just into a time of reflection, which I hope will become a time of repenting, of owning our part in the dysfunction of a family. Saying, God, first start with me. Change my heart, my attitude about this family. Why don't we do that for just a few minutes? Let's repent. Ask any orphan who was rescued in adoption. Ask any latchkey child who never sees his mom and dad. Ask any child of divorce who longs to see one or both of his parents. If family matters. If it feels better to be in or out of family. Pain and pride can make us believe that we don't need the family of God. But life is never better on our own outside of family. It's never better for anyone. And rather than letting your pain cause you to leave family, you've got to cry out to our Heavenly Father, repair this family, I need it. You have to be willing to bring your own faithfulness to this family whenever you enter. Life can be so much better when we actually have that with each other. It's what we long for. Let's just close by praying that God will do this right here at Harvest. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.